This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Riffing an Alien Species. Ken's Cartographic Bookshelf. Lightning Lightning Round. Round! And Martian Nukes. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent countenance of Peter Frampton coming alive... Tell us we've once more entered the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we look around the rec room paneling at the wet bar that Dad put in a while back and then gave up on because it involved an awful lot of carrying cases of beer up and downstairs. And also because we are here in the wet bar, so how does that pay for itself? Not at all. And we notice that there are an awful lot of ferns around, plants even. Is it garden club day or is it... A alien plant day here in the gaming hut. Robin, tell us, tell us, cross fingers for gardening club. So, uh, it is, uh, well, it's both actually gardening day and alien plant day. Okay. Uh, in an odd uh, conference. Uh, <laughs> I guess that would make sense if you're the alien plants, that's when you would arrive exactly. for gardening day. It's their, it's their national yes. holiday. So, uh, for the purpose of this segment, I thought that we would, uh, demonstrate the process of riffing an alien species. So uh, this is for a, a space opera type game, like Ashen Stars, for example. And I thought that we would uh, follow the process of uh, taking a premise and uh, expanding it to a fun, uh, playable, sentient species. And the idea here, again, as I specified, is that we're looking at space opera, so it has to be uh, credible within the boundaries of space opera being credible, so our science does not have to be 100%, but we're looking for something with a sciencey vibe 
rather than the uh, fantasy vibe that you get if you create a plant creature, a sentient plant being in an F20 game. And maybe we can do that again later and compare and contrast if people are super interested in that. But at any rate, uh, so the idea here is let's start with uh, how do you get to a, a sentient race that becomes a space-faring race, space-faring race, uh, that uh, feeds by photosynthesis. And so I guess the first uh, question we want to come up with is uh, a rationale for how an alien planet developed where the uh, evolution uh, drove plants to become ambulatory, because I don't think that you're going to have a uh, a sentient species unless they can move around. Or do you differ? I think that you can have a sentient species without motion. I don't believe that motion necessarily, in certainly in space opera terms, uh, presupposes uh, sentience or vice versa, rather. I think that you could, for example, have a planet. Let's say it's a planet that's got a, um, uh, a, a like it's a dual star system. So there's a ultra, heavy ultraviolet white star and a dimmer red companion star. And when the planet is close to the ultraviolet star, the white star, there is a lot of, of UV being dumped into the, into the uh, atmosphere. And so you have sort of a global warming effect on the planet and everyone, uh, gets, uh, get, get, get super energized up. And then there is a culling. So there's sort of a rapid, uh, uh, force feed, force cull effect. So you get evolution sort of compressed into the little things. Uh, and, uh, the, the plants that have grown to such, uh, great heights when the, uh, ultraviolet stars in the sky, uh, dwindle out when the red star is in. So plants begin to have to compete with each other for niches and for ability to maximize resources during the, the red star periods. And so as space opera tells us, once things have to compete, uh, tooth and claw for the same ecological niche, they grow up to be, uh, they, they, they get more super than they do on earth. And so the, uh, plants that can think and work together and, and, uh, telepathically commune or commune through rootlets or something, uh, begin to work together. And that gives you a basis sort of for a, a hive mind sentience. And then as more and more, uh, ecological pressure forces in the species that can break away from the hive mind and think for itself, uh, can prosper at the, uh, detriment of the sort of communal hive mind it came out of. And then those species are sentient, uh, sessile beings that are just thinking about stuff, uh, you know, philosophically and math there, they've worked out astronomy because they've got the two stars and they have to work out what those are. They've got chemistry because they can drink all the soil up. They've got, um, spectrography and all kinds of other observational sciences. And eventually they get, uh, the ability to, uh, bio, uh, engineer themselves by forcible budding and altering their own genetic code or altering the genetic code of other nearby plants, you know, epiphytes and uh, maybe insects that insects become their sort of manipulatory, uh, uh, arms. And then as they get, you know, smarter and smarter and continue to have to compete, then something bad happens on the planet, perhaps, uh, aliens, perhaps, uh, something else, or perhaps just the, uh, white star, uh, goes Nova or goes out. And so now they have to figure out how to move, uh, around and they engineer themselves into sessile in, into not sessile into mobile bodies and can walk around the planet and then know that they have to get off the planet because there's just not going to be enough ultraviolet energy to feed their giant plant brains. So their uh, uh, psychology then is going to be all about uh, sort of a lost abundance and a need to go to the stars and a um, hunger for solar energy and uh, 
can we uh, imagine uh, a, a plant-based uh, uh, starships that can uh, survive the rigors of space? Sure. I mean, you've got you can have a, a starship that uh, on the outside is always um, uh, is always freezing and dying, but it's like a tree, right? So the outside of a tree is is, necess- is sometimes dead, and then the the actual sap and everything goes on the inside. So they keep growing the inside based on their artificial sun. And that, you know, grows more plant. And then as it grows out, the, the external parts of the, of the spaceship, you know, dry up and, and get calved off by solar wind or just get removed by plants going EVA in their, in their EVA suits. So they're like uh, seeds headed in their, uh, uh, seed ships out uh, through space. Mm-hmm. And their goal is to, uh, colonize and to find, uh, planets where they're, uh, exist within the band of solar radiation that they can uh, live in and ha- they need water, they need nutrients, they need uh, Earth-like planets. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the thing about those is that, at least in space opera, uh, a lot of those will be inhabited. So uh, perhaps originally their arrival on other uh, planets as they have, have to uh, perhaps learn to play well with mammals because they... Uh, I uh, just think, oh, well, this, this planet's pretty good. It's got a lot of sun. Let's take over. Let's choke out these weird, uh, competitive, uh, animals, uh, which might include other sentient beings. And so another part of the backstory, the psychology of this player character species is that they, uh, have had to learn, uh, the necessity of, uh, sharing resources, uh, with others. And it might be, uh, that they have, uh, acquired a sort of a, a moral sense in retrospect that they didn't have in, in the first place, or uh, that they are just extremely tactical and they uh, figure out which uh, planets are uh, ripe for colonization and which ones aren't. Uh, I suppose uh, point A brings you more of the sort of space opera themes of uh, a, a common space opera theme is what does it mean to be human? What are the boundaries of humanity? And explores that by creating uh non-human species that then throw light on the human experience. And so uh, which which one do you think is more uh, fun to play? A a species that has suddenly had to bootstrap a tactical morality onto itself or just a a species that is still just entirely uh, resource-oriented and has then uh, chosen to ally with uh, humans and Kikvik and uh, Vasmal and whatever other... uh, non-human uh, alien beings you have in your, your world as possible players, which seems more uh, uh, fruitful to use a botanical term. I think that um, you can maybe have your uh, kohlrabi and eat it too here because we've got a system where you've got these, these plants that came out and they realized that, in, you know, they're these weird animals that maybe they didn't even have animals on the home world. It was all insect life. Uh, and fishes and whatnot, but they, but they didn't ever have any animals. And these weird animals are, uh, but I think you mean mammals uh, before we get yeah, well, actually. mammals, right. Um, uh, but they didn't ever have any of those because land life, you know, was, you know, the niches were all full up by these cr- crazily aggressive plants. And so the, um, uh, the, the, some of them are like, well, these, uh, mammals are just ridiculous and there's no point in even dealing with them. And those are your, your very hardcore, uh, dudes. And then others have said, no, no, we have to make deals so that we can get our share of these high UV, the, the tactical morality. And then maybe a third segment is saying, oh, well, look, we've found a, a, a wider, uh, world where in the past we were all this hive 
uh, plant life, and then we became individuated, and that has caused us alienation. And so if we can return to communion with all life, right, and whether that means infest these mammals with our uh, with our spores or with our insects and get them to to agree with us, or whether that means, no, genuinely Federation style, we're all brothers under the bark um, type attitude. It can be an argument that happens within the game. It's like, oh, I don't know about these new unionist um, uh, plant people. Um, is this a real, uh, is this, you know, a genuinely, you know, uh, uh, egalitarian, you know, open society type religion? Or is this a everyone will be of the body type thing? And so you can ask all kinds of questions. And then every individual plant guy that you meet might be, you know, insisting that, no, 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 that's just all a bunch of talk. We are the kind you want to bring on your ship. And you never know. And that sort of adds to a, a degree of um, inscrutability that you don't always have with your aliens because you can read in the book right there. Oh, they're uh, they used to be more like monsters, but now they're cool. But with the, with these plant aliens, it can be like, well, I don't know. Maybe it depends on what kind of sap they had on their seed ship or what the specific makeup of their insect uh, 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 colony is like or or whatever else. And it may just be that, you know, the the, the plant aliens themselves are sort of trying to figure out what their role is in the stars, especially if, as we've sort of begun to indicate that they're relative recent, uh, at, at arrivals in the, in, in the, in the, in the bleed or in the area of space that the game takes place in that they haven't quite sorted it out that they can, oh no, we can live on, uh, uh, Mars's that orbit in Venus's orbit, uh, type places that we don't necessarily have to have straight up M class wet worlds the way that, um, uh, mammals do. Right. And they can also have, uh, sort of colony ships that they can build that are basically space-faring environments mm-hmm. that are now, uh, once they, uh, they they didn't have the uh, one simple technology that other races have or other species have that, uh, that the plant beings don't, is UV light. And so uh, once you have that, they can uh, uh, incorporate that into their starships, but then that is a different technology that they need to rely on uh, mammalian uh, species to maintain for them. And so that's another reason why they would have to try and uh, get along. And so we've got a number of sort of uh, pan uh, species goals for them now. One is to, uh, some of them want to reunite with a hive mind. Others of them just want to find uh, ideal environments. And uh, others of them are just looking for more efficient uh, ways of uh, uh, gathering uh, UV energy in the stars, and uh, and once you once they make that leap of uh, energy can be converted into sunlight in an artificial environment, then uh, they suddenly need money because, or they suddenly have a, a motivation to have money because then uh, uh, money equals energy, energy equals food, and so that can give you your uh, motivation for the player character to be doing the sorts of things that they're doing is they could either be on a quest to uh, find the mysterious uh, MacGuffin that will enable them to reunite with the hive mind, or they simply are off gathering cash as young plant beings do, and then return to their uh, uh, non-planetary space colony with the, uh, with the money, which are uh, with the fuel, which is turned into UV rays. And so they're basically uh, bringing home the, uh, the, uh, not the bacon, but the, uh, uh, the fuel cells. And so that gives them a reason to participate in things like the freelance law enforcement activities that you see in Ashen Stars. And so that brings us to the question of how do we now make this species fun to play? And I think we've already hit on that by specifying that some of them 
are just extremely tactical in their thinking. And so uh, this can be the uh, player character for your tactician players in your group, the uh, ones who uh, sort of have fun uh, looking at a completely detached point of view where they analyze every situation and in Ashen Stars every interstellar mystery through the question of, well, where are the resources at? Where, what's the energy? What's the what's the flow of uh, all of these factors? And how do we how do we best accumulate our resources in the cheapest way possible while solving this mystery? And so that can give you a sort of a, I think a fun uh, kind of totally detached, uh, not a sociopathic or psychopathic character, but just a character whose perspective is just entirely based on uh, material equations. And the other thing that you can have to sort of uh, reinforce the tactical personality is an actual tactical requirement that if the uh, plant guy goes into action when it's dark, he's at minuses. But if he goes into action under bright ultraviolet light, he's at severe pluses. So what they want to do is if you're doing a boarding action, they want to seize the life support controls on the ship and crank up the UV all the way so that they will become sort of like raging berserker gods. Or if they get to a planet, it's like, oh, the planet's around a blue star. Great. We are going in hard. Oh, the planet's around a red star. Okay. We have to sort of sneak in and be cool and just send my insects and my spores out to check stuff out and not expose myself because I'm weak now because there's not enough UV coming in. Right. And plant, uh, the plant being can't suffocate per se, but he shuts down uh, after uh, too long a period of darkness and certainly you know, plants on our planet don't die when it's dark. Right. They just, they just uh, turn into pine cones. Yes. Um, and so, uh, but in order to remain active and not to shut down, they would have to wear, uh, rather than uh, uh, spacesuits that to give them an uh, artificial oxygen environment around their bodies, they would wear light suits that uh, beam lights at them when they are uh, quickly moving from one environment to the other, but they, that only lasts so long. And, and like spacesuits, those are vulnerable. So then that gives you a cool a bit of uh, specialty tech that you can associate with them. And then, you you know, you have the scene where they're, uh, you know, in their uh, quarters on the ship. They're basically, it's a big hydroponic dock, and uh, they may need to uh, put their roots in water for a little while and, and uh, suck in nutrients and stuff. But uh, uh, so are there any other little filigrees that we want to uh, add to this uh, alien race before we move on? I did want to mention that another thing that they can do, because they can shut themselves down like that and become seed pods again, uh, going to their, their winter state, is that uh, they can be, you know, put into like a crate of, uh, of, of uh, exported grain or something and shipped onto the planet and then emerge uh, sneakily. Uh, they're, you know, sort of ideal uh, covert entry guys as well. So they've got, I think, a tactically minded player given this list of, you know, not, you know, game breaking, but certainly game altering possibilities for their character can find all manner of great opportunities to, to play with that, with the plant guys. And, uh, you know, take advantage of their weaknesses and use them as strengths. And I think you can look at a lot of the things that we've riffed on these, on these plant guys as being possible uh, for that. Also, um, I think that it, it would uh, be fun uh, in a, in a game mechanical way, if they are the ones who've got their sort of uh, you know, bio drones, cause they've got their insects and their spores and maybe their little trained uh, 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 lemurs or something that, that clatter around the, the guys that maintain the UV on the ship are actually, you know, um, 
not pheromones, but whatever plants have that, that like flowers used to attract bees. Um, but that kind of thing, but that attracts these little IIs or bush babies that go around and maintain all their UV things because they can't afford to pay humans to do it. So they've got little, um, are those sentient? Well, not as you understand sentience. <laughs> right. And we understand sentience. Uh, you understand that if it were sentient, we'd have to pay it. So they're not sentient. Yeah. These, they, <laughs> they look like lemurs, but actually, if you look closer, they're arthropods, yeah, right, first of yeah. all. And secondly, we have a special fungus, a parasitical fungus that we've engineered to communicate our commands to the uh, to, to the arthropodic lemurs. And okay, maybe technically the fungus is sentient, uh, but it's happy working right. for us. Trust the, us. Don't worry. The fungus is part of our plant uh, uh, consciousness, so of course it doesn't disagree that the lemurs should yeah. work really hard. Yeah. Shut up, fungus. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, on that note, I think it's uh, time to uh, head on over to another hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So, yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And, mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. The Mercator projections, the compass rows, and the uh, carefully marked uh, elevation marks tell us that we've once more entered the well-demarcated confines of the cartography hut. And uh, this week I thought that we would uh, delve into an alternate Ken height. <laughs> In another dimension, uh, Ken, you became a, a cartographer, uh, rather than the uh, game designer, writer, and bon vivant that we know, although I'm sure the cartographic Ken Hyde is also a bon vivant. Yeah, the bon vivantness, I think, is, uh, is, is pre-existing. It's consistent throughout right. all the Kens. Uh -huh. uh, but at any rate, uh, even, even you, this Ken in this dimension, naturally has a section of your fabled 
a bookshelf devoted to uh, maps and mapping, and I thought that we would look at some recommendations for uh, books that are not atlases. They're not actually books of maps, but they are books about maps and mapping. So if anyone wants to uh, emulate your uh, bibliographic uh, choices, what uh, few books would you recommend that they acquire in order to seed their collection of books about maps? Okay, the first and I think most important book about maps for anyone, and I would say everyone to own, is a book called How to Lie with Maps by Marc Monmonier, and it is, or Monmonier, I don't know how he says his name, but is it's a little tiny thin thing, and it just lays out, here is how a map can mislead you, here is how you can draw a map to be completely accurate, and a lie. And there's a lot of, you know... Things that happen when you look at a map, your, your brain sort of short circuits infographics. I, I expect do the same sort of thing, but you, we are conditioned, uh, to understand that a map is a representation of the territory. And when you look at a map, your skeptical brain turns off in a way that it might not. If someone just said straight out, Oh, this is, you know, uh, the, the natural frontiers of Russia or something. And you would say, I don't think that that's the natural frontiers of Russia. But if you see a map of Russia and it says natural frontiers and there's a blue line, somehow you're like, well, that makes sense. They'd have to get to the river. Rivers make sense. And then sure enough, you have bought into the map story and the map may not even have lied to you, but it has been complicit in a lie. And it's just a terrific book. It's really short. It's really good. It's a little dated because of course it predates all this uh, computer jiggery pokery, but the fundamental principles are still good. And, and the power of the, the lie is the power of the visual because right. we, uh, e I think we're even less wary of incorrect visual information than we are of incorrect words going into our ears. Right. Yeah. Because the, um, you know, again, we have the scent, you know, the, who are you going to believe, uh, 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 your eyes or this, or this other thing. And it, if your eyes are the thing that it's being lied to directly, it's a little harder to get around. He has a couple of other books that are not as good. He has a book called Drawing the Line that's sort of a, uh, a of, uh, cartographic controversies and, and back and forths. And that, that's pretty good. It's, you know, it's certainly a good overview of things people, uh, got head up about, about maps. And he has a pretty good book that's a little more abstruse called Cartographies of Danger, which is just about hazard mapping and how it is done. So how do you map a floodplain? How do you map a, a Superfund site or a chemical spill? How do you map tornado paths? And the sort of, that's more of a how than a, uh, than a why. So it's not as much a philosophical interrogation as it is just a straightforward, you know, here are all the kinds of, of disasters that can happen, and here's how you use maps to convey that information, hopefully helpfully, and hopefully truthfully. Right, but in terms of, of gaming information, yeah. each one of those is a, there you go, there's a plot line there's, right there's there. There's an awesome plot there's line. There's a map-based, yeah. uh, here's what happens when your adventurers are caught up in a flood. Here's when your uh, spy team is sent uh, in to solve a case, and there's a chemical spill midway through. And it can also help with uh, games like Gumshoe, where you're giving clues and you can say you look at the map of the chemical spills and you notice that this area here should have uh, been one of the chemical spill sites given all the other sites because of your geological understanding of the ground or your understanding of how chemical uh, spills work and so you know that they're covering up this one spot for some reason or whatever and so because it is about the way information is conveyed it is automatically also a book of how clues can be conveyed in a role-playing game and so that's helpful in and of itself. So uh, what's book number two on your list? 
Uh, book number two is a book by Miles Harvey. And if the last one is sort of the general gumshoe, this is sort of the uh, Bookhounds of London version of it called The Island of Lost Maps, which is about map thieves. And it's specifically about one very, very successful uh, in the sense of, you know, soulless and he awful stole a lot of maps. He stole a lot of maps, not morally successful, but a, a, a guy who stole a ton of maps. Maps, of course, have a resale value that is greater than the, um, uh, than in some cases than the books they come out of. And, uh, with the exception of if you've broken up an atlas. But again, you can break up an atlas, sell the individual maps, and it's like, um, taking the VIN number off a car. You know, it's, it's like a chop shop for books. So taking maps out of books and selling them is a standard thief thing to do. And this is about that crime, uh, sort of looked at specifically through the career of this, of this one map thief. And so, it's good for bookhounds characters to understand the kinds of things that they might be into. And it's just, you know, if you are a fan of true crime, especially the non bloody murder kind of true crime, this is a, a, an interesting true crime book because it's the kind of thing that doesn't get talked a lot about. And actually to the extent it does, it's because this turned out to be sort of a surprise bestseller and everyone liked it. And uh, again, the scenario writes itself. You would get the, uh, the mythos tome that clearly has a page, uh, carefully sliced out of it and you have to track down the uh person who sliced the uh the map uh, from it and in this case he's not doing it to resell it but because he wants to be able to navigate the plateau of lang and uh he's got the lang map and so once you uh, uh keep on uh chasing him uh you eventually wind up having to find him on uh, lang and i suppose uh of the possible motivations that you would have for that you might uh, find that the uh the tome has become angry that it has been mutilated and is causing all sorts of nasty uh, psychic uh, supernatural side effects. And you have to uh, uh, put the uh, map back in the tome and then put the tome very carefully back in its sealing case and at uh, Miskatonic or uh, terrible things will ensue. So that gives you your uh, pursuit uh, you know, into an alien environment plotline. Or the map also might have been a, a control rod that is inserted into the book to keep it quiescent because yeah. it locks it down to one space time. It's like, you are here, and the map tells you you're here, and you take the map out, and the book is now, oh, I can be everywhere. I can be anywhere. I can be in your head. I can be not a book. I can be anything. And it's like, no, no, we need the map back in there. Uh, so, next book. Uh, the next book is by Kirsten R. Seaver, or Kirsten, and it's called Maps, Myths, and Men, The Story of the Vinland Map. And I don't know if you uh, remember the Vinland map. Uh, it came out. It was a giant big deal. Uh, they discovered what they thought was a medieval map that showed uh, the east coast of North America. And it was uh, found inside another book. Uh, and uh, the, there were wormholes in it and all manner of other, you know, it, they thought that it was an absolutely uh, true and thing. And that's as in holes made by worms. Made by worms, by yes. Stellar right. anomalies. Yes, not by a stellar anomaly. And it was, um, uh, it was discovered in uh, 1965. And they, or actually 57, and they, um, uh, believed that it was, um, a real deal and it got checked by, uh, a, uh, you know, scientists and the scientists were like, uh, it's pretty cool. And Yale University bought the light, bought the book at, you know, auction and made a giant deal out of their awesome book. And then the guy who began to check it, uh, went back and rechecked his samples with new technologies and new, uh, understandings. He was like, hold on. My old tests would not have eliminated these kinds of forgeries. And then another batch of guys started checking the ink and found new problems with it. And now, unless you are Yale 
uh, university, the map is pretty much considered to be a forgery. Now, the question of whether or not it's a forgery is not 110% closed, but it is um, uh, one of those things where people generally think that it is a a modern forgery on medieval parchment. And uh, Kirsten Seaver sort of takes the takes the stance that it is not a real map, but she presents the whole case up to the point uh, of uh, 2004 when she wrote the book as, as how it laid out. It's sort of a, a tour through this sort of the map is real, the map is not real, the map is real, the not, map is not real, this sort of bisociation in one document um, uh, the way that, uh, you know, the sort that fascinates me because I'm interested in, you know, things that are true one day and wrong the next day, that sort of Thomas Kuhn paradigm shift uh, and the fact that we can do it, you know, uh, three times before uh, getting up in the morning uh, or um, uh, twice a day, as uh, Humpty Dumpty says, it, it, it's always been very interesting to me that that sort of thing even goes on in the putative real sciences. And so the the notion of the Vinland map, because of the nature of its historical connection to America and because of the nature of Yale University looking like a bunch of idiots and because of the sort of high tech uh, specifics of, of how to figure out if that map is a forgery. It's just a nonstop interesting topic to me. And Seaver's book is probably the best one of it. There's also a book, um, called the uh, Vinland map and the Tartar relation, which, uh, they did a 30th anniversary of in 1995 after it was published. And that contains sort of the Yale take on the, uh, on the, um, uh, on the authenticity crisis at in 1995, which is again, the sort of, you can't prove it. And we're still calling it a map. <laughs> Right. Um, and uh, storyhook-wise, uh, on the cartography, we often reach for the idea that uh, maps make the reality of the thing that they map. So you could have a sort of a supernatural uh, storyhook in which someone is trying to get everyone to believe a, a map, which is uh, false in some crucial detail and accepted as true, and therefore it would be uh, come true. Otherwise, you could have a, I guess, sort of a murder mystery, uh, a straight-up thing where uh, someone gets uh, killed in order to conceal the identity of the map forger because uh, there's a lot of money at stake and a lot of people who don't want to be embarrassed. And uh, you could then uh, layer that uh, murder mystery into another genre, for example, in uh, Mutant City Blues or so forth. I think we have time uh, in this segment for uh, one more uh, book about maps. Do you have one? There are a number of books that are perfectly adequate books on maps. Uh, there's a adequate uh, biography of Gerhard Mercator by Nicholas Crane that I really can't recommend unless you care an awful lot about the minutia of social history of 16th century Holland or Belgium. Um but on the other hand, Mercator's an interesting dude. Uh, he rises from sort of uh, lower middle class. His dad is a, is a cobbler, a sh uh, and he becomes a map maker, which is sort of like uh, the the kid of the uh, bodega uh, joining the NSA as, as a as a analytic uh, genius. That sort of jump uh, socially and um, uh, and in all other ways. So Mercator's kind of an interesting fellow. Uh, he was uh, put in prison for possibly being Lutheran, which makes me happy. Well, maybe we should uh, give him a, a segment later. He, maybe he should get a segment. And then there's a book by John Noble Wilford, which is a very conventional history of maps uh, called The Map Makers, which is a completely legitimate history of maps. It's not going to wake anyone up if they were going to go to sleep already. But it's uh, if, if you're looking for sort of the one I want one book that will take the history of maps up until uh, uh, Google uh, ruined everything. Uh, John Noble Wilford's The Mapmakers will take you up to the beginning of digital cartography, though not 
quite up to everyone's got a map on their phone uh, uh that and that's more of a sociology really than a history of map making right so we're perhaps waiting for a, a great writer of popular science history to tackle the subject in a more vivid way uh, there, there is a popular uh, cultural historian named Simon Garfield who's done a book called Just My Type that is a book about fonts, and apparently he has a book about maps called On the Map, and uh, it, you know, got reviews from all the kinds of people who review nonfiction uh, well. You know, NPR loved it and Smithsonian and people like that. So it's probably uh, pretty much what you're looking for if you're looking for a sort of modern-day uh, sociological examination with a couple of detours into anecdote, you know, like I said, NPR and the Smithsonian like it. So if you like that, you'll pretty much know exactly what you're going to get. Um, I have not picked it up myself because I have not uh, had to expand my uh, bookshelf on cartography recently, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, you see it for a couple of bucks uh, on Amazon or on your uh, half price books table. I'm sure that it is worth a snatch. Uh, now that you've descended into uh, books that you recommend by proxy and also the Merely Adequate, we can then uh, close up this hut and move on to our next hut and or segment. when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect That upon sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. We've been out in the dry winter air, rubbing our feet against the ground, touching cats and metal posts... Until the static discharge has built up to such unimaginable depths that this Ask Ken and Robin segment is the Ask Ken and Robin Lightning Round! Yes, it's been a while since we've done a lightning round, so let's do one. Ken, take it away. Ross Ireland asks, Do you have a someday project kicking around you'd love to do, but maybe don't because it's maybe not marketable? Robin? I do not. Uh, the reason being that the definition of what is marketable has... Uh, wildly uh, changed over the years, and the lesson that I have learned is that sometimes the things that I think are most abstruse, that no one will be interested in, turn out to be 
the most profitable. Uh, that, for example, Hamlet's hit points, I thought, had an, ar- an audience maybe of 100 people, uh, two of whom were the, the publishers, uh, Jeff Tidball and uh, Will Hindmarch of Gameplay Right. But that has gone on to be a, a perennial seller, and I can't think of anything more obscure than that. So uh, with today's, and that was before the days of Kickstarter, it's just about direct sales. So uh, I've done, I think, really well by following my instincts of things that I would want to do. And it turns out that on the scale of publishing I'm at, there's enough other people that want to see it too. So can't think of anything. Ken? Yeah. I mean, like you, the the existence of Kickstarter and the ability, I think, of any project competently managed by someone who's already got an audience like you and I uh, to at least pay for itself means that pretty much everything is marketable to some extent. And it's just a matter of what I want to spend my next year or so doing. Uh, I used to say, you know, uh, that, uh, a, a Georgian England Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu, uh, uh, setting, uh, for the, uh, centered around the Hellfire Club would be that sort of project because who would care about, uh, Georgian England? And now that we, I think, have seen that pretty much a lot of people just care about what Ken and or Robin want to do. So, yeah, I could do that. I, I suppose I could think even harder about something even more abstruse, like my high action version of RuneQuest set in the Hellenistic Mediterranean. Perhaps if I, add more games people don't play a lot of that would be the way to uh drive it down but why why bother doing that i mean i've got i've got more ideas than than i'm ever going to use in my lifetime anyway and um so far they've all turned out to be marketable and you know once you get to uh redo dracula's a spy novel i think the the sky's the limit now next up lightning, lightning round, round. Andrew Miller asks, what gumshoe mechanic should D&D or 13th Age players borrow? The core gumshoe mechanic of not rolling for investigative abilities. Also, uh, preparedness. Also preparedness. Uh, Preparedness. uh, That's the general ability that you roll in order to determine uh, whether you have a thing in your pack or not, and that saves the uh, two to three hours that the one guy in your group who really cares about all the stuff in his pack Spans picking all the stuff in his Also, pack. it uh, lets you know if you thought of doing that already, so it cuts down planning exactly. time. Lightning round! Alejandro Mayo asks, what is your take on Zardoz, Robin? I dig Zardoz. I like that period of uh, trippy late 60s, early 70s sort of freak-out filmmaking, and I also like the cognitive dissonance that it causes in people who want it to be a logical explicable science fiction movie. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. I thought Zardoz was a was a hoot and a holler. I'm I'm not saying that if they came up with Criterion Collection Zardoz I would buy it, but on the other hand, uh I went to see Zardoz on the big screen because I'd only seen it on TV and I think that that was a worthwhile endeavor. Lightning round. Carrie Shutrick says, "Why would no one ever play the good vampire?" If Ken had anything to say about it. Because vampires are rapists and there are no good rapists. That is why. I agree totally. John Corey asks, what is the most surprising thing you learned about your listeners over the course of doing the podcast? Uh, The surprising thing that I always uh, run into is uh, how formidable many of you listeners are and how uh, uh, amazing your day jobs are. I'm also surprised that that many people want to listen to... Uh, two game writers talk about food that 
That really, I understand if you want to listen to Giada De Laurentiis talk about food, that makes total sense. Why you want to listen to me talk about food, that's a little weirder. But, you know, good for you guys. Yes, and all credit to that goes not to us. We would no, have never, no, that never, would done never it. occurred to either of us. That was a John Kavalik request as our uh, sponsor emeritus. Beloved core sponsor emeritus, John Kavalik. Lightning round! David Malmstrom asks, do you use sound effects boards like tabletop audio sound pad? Do you advise GMs to use it? Um, I occasionally will queue up uh, a music queue, a song queue. Uh, for example, uh, uh, recently the Ace of Spades came up in a drama system uh, procedural resolution, and uh, it was for a big action sequence, so I used a music streaming service of choice to uh, dial up Ace of Spades by Motorhead to play as everybody described that action scene. Uh, but sound effects themselves are a... Uh, a river I have yet to cross. I neither approve nor disapprove of sound effects. I advise GMs to use things that they are totally comfortable with, things that they can use without thinking about them, because by and large, you should be thinking about the game and the players and the reaction to it. But if you have internalized a uh, tabletop audio sound pad or whatever else there happens to be out there, knock yourself out. I, however, have found that I can make a machine gun noise that works just about as well. <laughs> oh, one other thing I have in gumshoe games, I do sometimes use the uh, law and order chunk scene to indicate that they've found all the clues in the scene and can profitably move on. Lightning round! Humza K asks, what is the product you most wish someone else would create? Um, cling wrap that doesn't stick to itself, but I suspect Humza is asking about game products. I would like uh, someone to create a mapping app for the iPad that allows me to move figures around it in real time and then Chromecast the map uh, to my big TV. Okay. I'll bet that you have now got 8 million people who will go into our comments and tell you what sort of crazily not actually what you asked for product combo will create the effect you're asking about. Oh, yes, they yes. will. Um, uh, yeah. No, I, I just want to see a a um, uh, robust, uh, long play game with a strong central component about romance. I think that we are still grossly over uh, overdue for that. And poor Emily Kerboss cannot revolutionize an entire design industry all by herself. So that, I mean, she can, but she's got better things to do. Lightning Lightning Andrew Jones asks, outside of playtesting, do you follow reports of games in play that you've designed? Um, I have to say that I don't follow them closely, but that is not disapproval. That is time efficiency. I follow some of them, but not all of them. So if, if you've got a Dracula dossier game out, there's a Google Plus uh, a board where the uh, GMs are all reporting back to each other and giving themselves uh, tricks and tips. I follow that religiously because it's exactly the kind of thing that I want to know when I'm writing a product that ideally GMs will keep using. Uh, I want to know how GMs have used something. I don't necessarily do actual plays where we, you know, we have four hours and people are having a great time playing a game I did because I could be having uh, a great time playing another game for four hours or I could be writing the next get batch of games in those four hours. So it's a, it's a time question, but I do pay very much attention to sort of focused, uh, especially GM feedback, but even player feedback if it's the sort of focused review and recap feedback as opposed to uh, blow by blow. Justin Lowmaster asks, I had one too many named bad guys in the two fights of my first try at Feng Shui 2, and they seem to take a long time. I assume he means the fights. Does that make that much a difference, Robin? Yes, it does. Feng Shui is very tightly calibrated. 
Lightning Round! John David Choate asks, What question would you ask H.P. Lovecraft if you had the chance? Actually, it says, What question would you ask H.P.? But I think this is not about brown sauce. Brown sauce. Right. This is about H.P. Right. Lovecraft. Uh, and why that one? Uh, I would... Um, <laughs> um, it, it depends on how I'm getting the chance, right? Is it a necromantic communion? You know, then it's like, what the hell do you want, H.P. Lovecraft? <laughs> yes. Why are your why fingers are you wrapped here? around stop, my throat? Stop. Why are you strangling me? Um, but if it's just sort of a generic, you know, uh, five people you meet in heaven and H.P. Lovecraft type nonsense, um, I'd probably ask him uh, to expatiate on the plot of House of the Worm, uh, his lost novel. Um, I've, I've seen mentions of it in uh, the, the recent letter that they just found. There's a perhaps slightly longer discussion of the plot, but I, I want to know more because I think that we were, we were robbed of a couple of really great novels from him. Uh, yeah. I would ask a similar question is uh, what story ideas did you have kicking around in your head that you didn't write down and leave to posterity? And uh, the obvious answer to why that one is so I could steal them. So I could steal them. Yeah. So I could publish them as a posthumous collaboration and become the August Derleth of the 21st century. Lightning Rome! Michael R. Smith asks, if you could add a supernatural, paranormal, or conspiracy element to any famous 20th century event that does not already have one, which one would it be? Hmm. I did not prepare for this question, so I'm stroking my stroking chin. What would chin. you say, Ken? Well, I mean, first of all, they, they all have one, right? I mean, that is yes. what we've learned about supernatural, paranormal, and conspiracy elements. I mean, as, if you've added all three of those, yes, there is no moment of the 20th century that does not have that. And if I don't right off the top of my hand know the supernatural or paranormal aspects of the Easter Rising or the replacement of uh, the Chinese Communist Party leadership by Mao in the uh, 20s and 30s, it's just because I haven't done the research and I'm sure someone has already done it. So I would just say I would add it to one that I haven't done yet, which would be maybe Lawrence of Arabia, which I think is uh, one of the funnest uh, uh, 20th century events. And it's, again, something that pretty much everyone knows well enough, but they don't know it so well that they are going to be familiar with all the all the uh, twists you put on it. Uh, I came up with a brilliant answer, but then I uh, looked at the question again and it says 20th century. But I'm going to oh. give my uh, answer to a different question anyway. Obviously, from what you're saying, that the secret then is to take a boring historical event and add supernatural and magic to it in order to make it interesting. So uh, this is two generations too early, but I would have the secret uh, magical history of the uh, process by which... Uh, Canada achieved confederation in 1867. There you go. I guess you could do Expo 67 and the the uh, the, the magic of the uh, uh, sort of country and era defining uh, World's Fair in uh, in 1967. That that could be fun too. You get the FLQ and stuff in that. So, so wait for Shadow over Meech Lake coming soon. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Lightning round. Uh, and our final uh, lightning round question comes from Tukahamola. Who asked, do you find yourselves always analyzing the story beats of a movie and turning news articles into RPG ideas? Are you able to ever turn off this part of your brains? Um, yes, but the movie has to be really good. It has to be, like, super good for me to turn that part of my brain off. That part of my brain is always working because it's my brain. That's how my brain works. Um, but if a movie is just so utterly successful, uh, I can actually not do that until the instant I leave the theater as opposed to during the film. But that has to be like true grit level of, of, uh, successful or, um, even, uh, there will be blood. For example, I was still doing it throughout. There will be blood, even though that was a tr tr tremendous, tremendous movie. So it has to be just 
absolutely a double plus. Yes, for me, the answers to the questions are yes and no, like yours. Um, but I find that I can do it in parallel. I can be utterly transported uh, by a film on one level, but at the same time be going, oh, that's really interesting uh, composition there, or this is how this soundtrack effect is achieving its effect, or, or you know, oh, look, here's that story beat. And also, I am a, uh, I laugh ahead of things happening because I know they're happening. Right. Yeah. You, you, um, uh, oh, it's going to be hilarious when he does that thing that he's doing now. Right. Right. And I, uh, and consequently, I uh, particularly enjoy a really well done uh, switcheroo where you're expecting one payoff and you get a different payoff that still also totally works. Or you get the payoff and then you think, no, we're 20 minutes too early for that to be the payoff. And so you have like a, a fun little short subject to watch while you're trying to recognize the next payoff. Uh, so that's a, a good batch of uh, lightning round questions, and we can now move on uh, via this commercial to our final segment. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The gray space UFO explorer staring at us through the window with his beady eyes and his uh, probing stick. Uh, the alien big cat screeching out in the moor tell us that we once more entered the mysterious confines of the elliptony hut in which weird mysteries of a non-supernatural nature are explained and exposed. And this time, as Terry O'Carroll has requested in a sort of an echo of the Ask Ken and Robin, we're going to look at the theory that Martian civilization was destroyed in a nuclear Armageddon. Uh, and this uh, theory has been put forward by a man named uh, John Brandenburg, who, uh, in a not uncommon pattern, is a, a recognized authority in one field who has a juicy fringe theory about another field. So, Ken, uh, where do you want to start turning around the Martian nukes theory? Um, I, you know, I would start with, uh, as you say, the fact that John Brandenburg is a plasma physicist, which makes him roughly as competent to discuss 
the question of uh, uh, Martian nuclear war as I am. Uh, and so uh, he did uh, examine the uh, spectrometry from the um, which, which, uh, the Mars Odyssey orbiter, and he decided that there was anomalous radioactive concentrations on Mars of uranium and thorium and potassium, and that these specific locations were in two spots on in, in the northern hemisphere of Mars. And his original theory was that those were uh, natural nuclear reactors uh, in the same way that we had uh, one on Earth uh, in Oklo in Gabon. Uh, that was discovered, I think, in 1972, and it was a just a big old pile of uranium that turned out to be critical mass, and so it just spent about a, one and a half million years cooking itself down and uh, turned into a big pile of uh, spent uranium, basically, which is what it is now. Uh, and if that can happen in Gabon, there's no reason it can't happen in Mars. His theory previously, he was one of the postulants of the Mars ocean theory, that Mars had been covered with a big, uh, mostly shallow ocean that had uh, drained or evaporated away as uh, Mars um, uh, uh, cooled and whatnot. Uh, and so that's where he gets the water that you might necessarily need to cool down this natural nuclear reactor. The Mars ocean theory is not uh, crank science. It is probably, I think, not the consensus anymore, although I may be two Marses behind on what consensus Mars is. And then, uh, as these things do, he postulated this, and for whatever reason, uh, he then began to look at the Martian atmosphere and he says, Oh, there's, um, xenon isotope ratios in the atmosphere of Mars that do not match what we expect to be a standard decay curve. And those are from, from radioactivity in the Martian atmosphere. And where a lesser man might have said, Could it have been from these natural nuclear piles that I've been positing? Could there be an upwelling or could there be something else? He says, no, it was a nuclear airburst, and his proof of that is he looked at the area underneath the center of the anomalous radiation, and there were no craters, which, of course, means there must have been a nuclear airburst, or possibly <laughs> some other explanation. But once he has gone around that little corner of nuclear airbursts on Mars, that's when he loses it, and so he now goes on your Art Bell shows and whatnot, and he has... Uh, posters that he goes to uh, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference. And if you if your paper is not picked to be presented, then what you get is a poster. And you can put up your posters, and it's sort of like an art show at a con. And so you walk around and look at people's posters, and on their – it's like science fair. And you walk around and you look at their poster, and the poster might say, we've discovered a, a moon of, of Neptune, or we've discovered a gamma ray burster in Hercules, or in his case, we've discovered nuclear war on Mars. And uh, f according to um, witnesses – at the convention, he put up his poster late and may have been drunk and was certainly being a goof and uh, was unprofessional at a scientific conference, which tells me that he is not only uh, moved around the train of, you know, person who has a bizarre theory like Linus Pauling and all his vitamin C, uh, but he has now begun to move that into the center of his identity and that that is where you can sort of see John Brandenburg's uh, useful contributions to plasma physics, probably dropping off the edge of the earth. Um, because now it's going to be all about how close are my nuclear airbursts to the Cydonia face and the pyramids of uh, galaxia chaos and whatnot. And he's going on all manner of uh, cult shows and explaining that uh, uh, Jesus was in charge of the nuclear bombs on Mars or whatnot. It's just all manner of, um, of, of strangeness that he is uh, moving into rapidly. So the 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the notion of an atomic war on Mars is cool, absolutely, but his evidence is not that thing. So, uh, how do we, uh, take this, uh, fringe? The problem with, uh, nuclear uh, devastation on uh, Mars that ended Martian civilization in terms of our taking it and using it uh, for plot hook purposes is that means that not only is Mars uh, very far away, as it has always been and will continue to be, but that there's nothing really much to interact with uh, there. Unless you're doing a near-future sort of uh, uh, an adventure where you're, you know, uh, 22nd century, 21st century, uh, late 21st century, early 22nd, and you're out there colonizing Mars, and sure enough, you've stumbled on their old fallout uh, bunker or something. Right. So you get the, the Martian archaeology story. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, the thing about fringe science is that the man is always trying to put it down. That's what the man does. He lives to do it. Do we know uh, why the man is trying to... Uh, uh, interfere with his poster and tell these uh, slanderous stories about his behavior at science uh, conventions and so forth? Is there what what stake do they have in suppressing us? I think that the man, remember, is very much invested in uh, good old Alternative 3, where they're moving the Davos elite off-planet to uh, domed settlements on uh, on the moon and then onto Mars. And Mars is, is going to be the new retreat of the planetary elite after global warming destroys the Earth. And this, by the way, explains how why we have such a terrible current planetary elite is because all the good planetary elite left like right after the Reagan administration. They just got on their rockets. The they went off to, um, uh, to, to Mars and they're like, Oh my God, could you people hurry it up? This is just embarrassing. Um, but the, uh, but the, uh, planetary elite does not want us to look into, uh, the recent past of Mars. They don't want any interest in, uh, settlement on Mars because if you, uh, let, uh, the people, at the raw data, they'll find not just these uh, nuclear signatures, uh, but they'll also find the carefully camouflaged planetary elite uh, compound. And uh, the thing about it is you can just use the public data to find these anomalous nuclear signatures. Uh, but what you can't do necessarily is um, uh, find the compound unless one of those is not a nuclear airburst at all, but is actually the uh, plume from their nuclear reactor that they're using to power their Martian hideout. Ah, there we go. Okay, so now we have a, a plot line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you uh, could then have the plot line where the uh, uh, the privatized uh, space exploration guy, mm-hmm. uh, your, your fictionalized Elon Musk, as it were. Or your fictionalized Jeff Bezos. Right, that they uh, decide to launch their own private mission to Mars. And in that case, either they are... Um, unaware that the the secret masters have already uh, colonized Mars, or they just weren't on the list, that it was uh, people who were influential during the Reagan administration. Right, yeah, not going to be people who are making virtual bookstores or um, uh, electric cars, for God's sake. Right, so there's there's the new wave of uh, uh, Martian parvenus who want to uh, also make their way there and are willing to expose the uh, original settlers' plan in order to uh, get there, and that way that gives you a modern-day uh, espionage uh, campaign that eventually, of course, lands up on, uh, winds up on Mars as you're going there to find out just who are the uh, secret uh, masters behind the domes. Because by that time, they've probably blown up a city on Earth and caused all sorts of... Uh, they've released uh, you know, a, a viral epidemic and done all sorts of things where you want to get there and meet them and uh, take a hammer to their dome. Right, exactly. Uh, the other possibility, of course, is that the nuclear airbursts on Mars were 
uh, something that we did to knock out the Nazi Martian base. And uh, the Nazi Martians have gone underground and are now going to emerge because they've melded themselves with the H.G. Wells vampire psychic Martians who lived under the under the crust uh, and with Yovambis, the um, uh, Clark Ashton Smith demigod of Mars. And he's sending his uh, Nazi uh, pod creatures back to Mars or, or back to Earth from radioactive Mars. And uh, uh, Brandenburg is the first guy to notice these, uh, the, the, the nuclear signature of the old Nazi bases. And so the covert government is actually sending teams there to find out what's going on. And that is going to begin the new war of the worlds, uh, against Nazi vampire Martians. That has the advantage of simplicity. It does. Yeah. Straightforwardness. That's what I like. Yep. Um, so anything else we need to, uh, touch on before we consider this uh, topic well nod? Um, I mean, I think Mars just by and large is terrific and anything that you find out about Mars, um, uh, you can, you can play with time. Uh, there's the whole, you know, everyone has always got the notion that going to Mars may involve time travel. Uh, for example, when John Carter goes to Mars, he doesn't go to current Mars, which is dead and cold. He goes to ancient Mars, uh, which had still got life clinging to it. Uh, when, uh, you know, uh, you've got, uh, the Martian Manhunter, when he's summoned down from Mars by Professor Ertl, he's summoned down from Mars in the past, not Mars in the present. So the notion that moving to Mars is time travel is kind of an interesting thing. So the, the uh, atomic attack in the past of Mars, uh, could also be, uh, indication of an atomic attack on Earth, uh, at some point in the past, or it could be an indication that this doom that came to Mars is coming to us and we have uh, only a bit of time to prepare for it, not millions and billions of years. Uh, well, on that note, then, we better conclude this podcast and allow our listeners to go and stock up on uh, water and crackers and whatever else they need to survive. Mars bars, perhaps. Mars bars, a Martian invasion, yes, indeed. Well, because the, the Martians really like Mars bars, and you can bargain with them. If you, exactly. If you, them. you can That's use what... them to sell out your fellow citizens. Yeah, they're, they're called Mars bars for a reason, people. That's right. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep the show in life-giving chlorophyll by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Watch out for our Patreon, whose ducks are so rapidly coming into alignment. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>